So I'm very thankful to be able to come here and share God's Word with you. And we'll go ahead and open a word of prayer and we'll turn to the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter um, 9 to begin with and then we'll get started. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the privilege and the joy of being able to come here and share your truth and your love with the men and women in this room. It is so delightful to see some old faces, some new faces. Um, And most delightful is the fact of knowing that your kingdom is being built every day through the preaching and the teaching of your word, that your Holy Spirit, you Holy Spirit, are growing a people for yourself. And my prayer is that every man and woman in this room will be affected through the preaching of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might all be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, which is your will. And so, Lord, we pray in His name. We pray in the name of Jesus that You will be with us tonight and help us to see Him, to receive Him, to believe Him. And I pray that You will give us the strength and the willingness to walk with Him so that others might know You. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the handout that I have given you um, is, uh, this is, we're going to have about two more classes on Christology 101. Right? What did we say the word Christology means? Christ. Ology. What does ology mean? The study of. So we've been studying the study of Christ. And in particular, for about the last six classes that I've been with you guys, we've been talking about the scope and the efficacy. Actually, we've been talking about Christ as our mediator, right? Who remembers what we said a mediator is? A go-between. That's exactly right. So Christ is fully man. He's 100% man. He's also 100% God. We'll see that tonight in our lesson. And the reality is, is because He's 100% man and 100% God, and because we're only 100% man, we can't grasp the concept of 200%. We don't understand that. But the reality is, is because He is man and because He is God, He can be our go-between with our Father who art in heaven, right? And so His, His, His role as mediator, um, we, we've talked in the last couple months about the three roles that Christ plays. Does anybody remember what those three roles were? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Okay, Jesus doesn't do all three of those roles, right? That's the three persons of the Trinity. God is one being. God is three persons. God is one being, right? So when the Jews say in their Shema, in their daily prayer, the Lord your God is one God, right? He is one being. But He is also three persons. He is God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father sent the Son to die and to save a people for Himself. Uh, Jesus came and did what His Father sent Him to do. He did all of His Father's will. He was buried in a grave three days later. He arose. He ascended to heaven. And now He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And God the Father and God the Spirit have sent... uh, God the Father and God the Son have sent God the Spirit now down to the earth uh, because Jesus could only be in one place at one time because He's in a human body. But God the Spirit can be everywhere at one time. He's in this room with us today, and, and praise God, He's in most of our hearts, right? He's, he, he lives within us. But God the Father, God the Son, has sent God the Holy Spirit to come now and to convict us of our sins and convince us of what Jesus did on the cross for us and confirm that we belong to Him by sharing His faith, His grace, His salvation with us, right? So those are the three persons of God. But when Jesus came and lived on the earth, and actually before He was here, and now now that He's gone, all right, He performed three roles, and He's still performing those three roles today. What are the three roles? Uh, number one, Moses promised that there would be a greater prophet that would come after Him, right? Uh, uh, 
Daniel, uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggad, those are all prophets. They speak the Word of God. But Jesus is the prophet. He is the Word of God. And He is the one who inspired... Uh, he is the one who sent His Spirit to inspire those men who wrote those passages in order that we could know God. Right? He's the mediator. He's the prophet. And Moses had promised Him. So all through the Bible we see that the children of Israel were looking for the prophet. There's a passage in the New Testament. I can't pull it right off the top of my head. But somebody asked Jesus. They said, are you the prophet? The one we're looking for. Right? And so he plays the role of prophet. A prophet is someone who speaks for God. That's one of the roles of Jesus uh, as mediator. He speaks for God. What's another role? Does anybody remember? High priest. He's the high priest. That's exactly right. Just like Aaron was the high priest at the tabernacle, right? And Ananias was the high priest of the temple. Jesus is the high priest over his church. I was just having this conversation with some people today uh, in another class I was teaching. Um, if, if many of you might go to your pastor if you have a problem, right? And you pray with him, you talk with him, he counsels you. Well, your pastor is actually acting as a counselor, and that's actually a good thing. For the few of you in the room that are Catholic, you go to your priest to confess your sin, right? You go and you, you speak with a priest, you talk to him, and you, he counsels with you as well. But we have a high priest in Christ Jesus who supersedes any priesthood here on earth. See, the problem with our pastors and the problem with our priests is they're human beings and they're flawed just like us. And not only that, they are not the mediator. They are not the go-between between us and God. That's Jesus' role. Now, they are under-shepherds, and if they are truly an under-shepherd of Jesus, what should they do? Point us to the real mediator. So we take our prayers to God. And the reason that we can do that is because Jesus is our high priest. Right? Not only is he the priest, he was actually a sacrifice too, wasn't he? He was all of it rolled into one. And so in the same way that Aaron was the high priest of the children of Israel, Jesus is the high priest of the church. And Jesus is actually interceding for the people of Israel too, is he not? Do you think, don't you think that when you, we'll see this in a few minutes in our lesson, when Moses and all them were coming along, Jesus was already, he was in heaven because he's eternal. Do you not think he was interceding for his people at that time as well? So, he's not only the prophet, and he is not only the high priest. One other thing. Our Lord. He is our Lord, right? King. 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 Good. Just like David was the king of Israel, Jesus is king of kings. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right? Y'all heard that song before? That's from Handel's Messiah. Right? You hear it at Christmas time. But that's what it's proclaiming, that Jesus is the eternal king. So not only is He our prophet, not only is He the prophet, not only is He our priest, not only is He the high priest, but He is also our King and the eternal King. And when I call Him King, when I call Him Lord, what that means is I'm calling Him, uh, we've used this example a lot, I hope that you'll remember it, He's the boss of me. When you was a little kid and you didn't want to do what your friend said, you say, "Uh, I'm not going to do that because you're not the boss of me. But when you're praying and calling Him Lord Jesus Christ, when you're calling Him Lord, what you're admitting is, you're the boss of me. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew? Uh, we, I was just studying this today. He said there's, on Judgment Day, there's going to a lot of people that's going to come up to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do this and this and this? And what is Jesus going to say to them? 
Depart from me, I never knew you. They professed Him as Lord with their heart, mouth, but their hearts were far from Him. And because their hearts were far from Him, so were their works. He said, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. See how that works? So with their mouth, they were calling Him Lord. But with their hearts, who was Lord? They were. They were the boss of themselves. They were the boss. And they were doing things not to glorify God, but to glorify themselves. And when man seeks to glorify himself, he's always in sin. I just was reading an article this week that said there are a lot of people that are pagans that don't even believe in God that do good things. Right? They donate money to charity, etc., etc. But the reality is, even their good works are sinful to God. And you know why? It's because they're not doing these things with a heart of faith. They're doing them because they want glory for themselves. A lot of them just want a tax write-off, to tell you the truth. But the reality is, it's all about them. They're not doing it for their neighbor and God. They're doing it for themselves. So, Again, we see Jesus is the mediator. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. We, we learned all of that in the past. And in the last couple of classes we had together, we talked about the scope and the efficacy of the atonement. Now, that sounds really fancy, guys, but it's very simple. What is a scope? Marie, what's a scope? The scope of work is like the, the view, the overview. Yeah, it's what you look through to hit a target, right? Okay, yeah. That's what a scope is on a rifle. Well, the scope is the view that you have. Alright? That's what the scope means. And what it means is when Jesus was pouring His blood out on that cross, He was dying for His sheep. He said, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for my sheep. So there was a scope involved in His death on that cross. What do I mean by that? Everything within that scope, what? Gets hit with the Word. You see how that works? There was a scope involved in Jesus' dying on the cross. And that scope was, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for my sheep. So who did Jesus die to save? It's the scope of His his atoning work. The efficacy. What does it mean if something is effective? It gets the desired desired results. And what you'll learn as you read the Bible, as you study the Bible, as you grow in your understanding of God's redemptive narrative. There's another fancy term. Redemptive narrative. What is a narrative? A story. And if you go from Genesis to Revelation, there is one giant story. And it's the story of fallen redemption. It's the story of God creating, the creation falling, and God restoring it. And it's one big story, one big picture all the way through. So a narrative is a story. What is redemption? What is the redemptive narrative? Redemption is the purchasing of something, right? You redeem something, you go in and you pay money for it and you take it, right? You redeem a coupon. You go in and you give them a coupon for your dog food and they take $5 off of your bag of dog food, right? So if the dog food was $15, I pay $10 for it and give them a coupon for $5, I can walk out the store, right? But what if the dog food costs $16, I give them $10 and a $5 coupon and I walk out the store? What have I done? I owe a dollar. I'm stealing. I owe because I didn't pay enough. You see? But when Jesus died on the cross, the last word He said is, it is 
finished. He died on that cross to purchase a people for Himself. And the entirety of the Bible is the story of that redemptive narrative. And you talk about a scope and the, the center of the scope. There's a cross and a scope in there. The very center of the redemptive narrative is Jesus on that cross. You see how that works? So, the death of Jesus on the cross is the focal point of the redemptive narrative. And His death on that cross, the work that He did on that cross, has a scope and an efficacy. It had a people in view. And for every single person that He poured His blood out for, they will be saved. Every single one. And if you're in this room today and you truly are a blood-born, bought child of God, it is because He died on that cross to save you. He was buried in a grave. Three days later, He rose from, rose from that grave. He's sitting in, at, at, in heaven waiting for His enemies to be made a footstool. And Him and His Father sent His Holy Spirit to confirm in your heart what He had done for you. And because you have faith, because you received Him and believed Him, you have been given the right or the privilege to become a child of God. That's what it says in John 1, 12, 13. So I want you to think about this picture really quick before we get into the, text, the rest of the text tonight. Faith is not something you do. Faith, if you, if you can use this as a picture, faith is your hand reaching out and receiving something that God has done. And for those who have really received Him in faith, they are saved. Why? Because He died to save them. He's paid for all of those sin, their sins. Not only did He take away all of their sins, but He then has shared with them His goodness. And it's His goodness that gets you into heaven. That's the reason you go to heaven. Not because you're good, but because He is. He took away and paid for all the times that you sinned against Him, and He shared with you His goodness. And so our faith, in faith, we reach out, we receive Him, and He gives us the right to become children of God. Then all of those who have received Him, He then you then take that grace and faith and salvation that He has given you and you share it with others. That same hand now extends out to in love to God and neighbor. You see how that works? And so Jesus had a scope and an efficacy involved in His redemptive work. He died on that cross to save a people and it is effective. If there is someone in hell today who died and went to hell, it is because they have no redemption. They have no forgiveness for their sins. The reason that people go to hell is because they're paying for their sins. And God is a just God. Nobody gets away with it. The wages of sin is death. And because God is a just God, everyone who sins must pay with death. By dying on that cross, He took a death that we deserve so that we could have a life we could never earn. And so our faith in what He has done is not what saves us. It's what He did that saves us. And I'm just going to put my trust in what He did. You see how that works? So now who am I trusting in? Him. But if I'm dependent on my faith to get me to heaven, there's a problem with that because I don't believe sometimes. Sometimes I doubt. You see? It's not the strength of my faith that saves me. 
It's what my faith is in that saves me. I can believe with all of my heart and all of my mind and all of my soul and all of my body that I can fly. I can believe that, right? A song, I believe I can fly. Uh, who sings that song? R. Kelly. R. Kelly. Well, R. Kelly can believe that he can fly, but I can tell you this. If he believed enough in his heart to stand on top of a 10-story building and jump off and sing, I believe I can fly, one million out of one million times he's going to fall and hit the concrete and die. Why? Because his faith is based on something that is not true. You see, gravity works every time. Gravity is a law that has been given to us by God and it works every time the same way. Why? Because God is the one that places the law of gravity in place and it works every time. And so if I put my faith in the fact that I can fly, I'm spitting in the face of God's reality that gravity always works. Now, if I put on a parachute, I can float. I'm not flying, but I can float. Now, if a bird stands on the side of a branch and he believes he can fly, guess what? He flies. Why? Because God created him to fly. And he's not defying gravity. He's working with it and he's working through aerodynamics to be able to do what God created him to do. So our faith has to be in something that is true. And what is true is Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king who died to save people for himself and all of those who receive him, all of those who believe him, all of those uh, who receive him are given the right to become children of God. They're adopted into the family. See? Okay, so let's look at our passage together. Again, we're going to finish up talking about the scope what is the scope? Who all is involved and the efficacy of the work of Jesus on the cross. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. And remember the Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11. And we'll, we'll just work through a little bit of that together. Look what it says. But when Christ, what? Appeared. Right? As the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So see what it's saying? Jesus did what? In the same way that they offered all of those bulls and goats all through the Old Testament, Right? None of those could ever take away sin. How do we know that? Because every week they had to bring another one back and sacrifice it again. It was a constant repetition of pouring out the blood of animals. The blood of animals cannot cleanse us from sin. You dying, you, you sacrificing yourself is not going to save you or anybody. Salvation is God's work. But those people, there are actually people in the Old Testament who came and brought sacrifices. Why? Because the law commanded it of them, and in faith they came and brought that sacrifice. It was not the shedding of the blood of that animal that gave them forgiveness for their sins. It was their faith in what that animal represented. You see how that works? Now, what is their faith in? It's in the fact that the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. 
I know I deserve to die, and this animal is dying in my place. Now, it never worked, did it? Because they had to continually keep bringing the sacrifice over and over again. But look what it says in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See? Through His death, our conscience can now be cleansed. How many times did Jesus die on the cross? Once. Once. Matter of fact, we'll see that in a second. Flip over to chapter 10. Look over it. Um, look at chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now again, remember what we're talking about here tonight, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking about sacrifices, aren't we? Sacrifice was a big part of the Old Testament, the cultic system of Israel. When I say cultic, I mean the worship system. The entire book of Leviticus is all designed to tell them how to worship God. And it was a bloody mess, wasn't it? You see? But the reason for all that blood is because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's actually what it says in the book of Leviticus. Without the shedding of blood, something's got to die for what you did. But none of those bulls, none of those goats, none of those heifers, none none of that could actually, the blood from those animals cannot cleanse you. Why? Because those animals have also fell with Adam. You ever thought about that? I had a kid ask me one time and it hit me right in the mouth. I had never really thought about it, but he asked me, after Adam and Eve fell, after God had to kill an animal and cover them from their nakedness. Remember, He clothed them with the garments from a, a sacrifice. So who made the first sacrifice? God. He destroyed an animal and covered Adam and Eve in the skins of that animal. That's actually a picture of what Jesus did on the cross. His Father poured out the wrath we deserve on Him and through His death we can now be covered in Jesus' righteousness. See, that's the redemptive narrative. That's the story that in the very beginning God already had the plan in place. It, it wasn't going to change. And so what we learn is, is that God poured out His wrath on an animal so that He didn't have to pour it out on Adam and Eve. Now watch this. I had this kid ask me one time, I said, was, did it make Adam sad that, the, that God killed the animal? Well, how many of y'all have a dog or a cat that died? Did it make you sad? Yeah. Oh. Do you like to see animals suffer? No. 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 And all of the suffering and all of the pain and all the death in this world was caused by a choice that Adam made in the garden. And he fell. And now we are all, all of us, as Adam's children, are still in that same struggle. We are still in that fallen state. And things have to die. That's why we go to funerals. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And blood, 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 blood. All through the Old Testament is a reminder that something has to die. And so look what it says in verse 4. It is impossible. This is Hebrews 10, verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin you have not taken no you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written to me to do your will, O God. Alright? Well, what the writer of Hebrews here is doing, what Paul's doing here is he's quoting the Old Testament. 
and said God was never God never took pleasure in all of those animals in the blood of all of those animals. I, I don't know off the top of my head. He wrote um, Romans. He wrote First, Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First, uh, Second Thessalonians, First, Second Timothy, Titus, uh, Philemon, and most. So that's eleven. And most people believe he wrote Hebrews. If you go find an old Bible from back in the forties or the fifties, it'll say the Epistle to the Hebrews, uh, uh, an Epistle from Paul the Apostle to the letter to the Hebrews. In more modern times, we got more scholars now that have figured out that Paul didn't write it. They don't believe Paul wrote it. Um, so there's speculation about whether Paul wrote it or not. Um, but I personally believe he wrote it. So I, it's about, tw- it's, I think, 12 books of the New Testament he wrote. And I'm doing that off the top of my head, so please don't hold me accountable for that. Like, I know that those books that I just named you were the ones he wrote, and I can't think off the top of my head of any other one that he did write. But... You can do that research. I have faith in you. All right. Um, so, uh, verse 8. After saying above, right, and can I put my faith in you? Am I putting my faith in something that's true? Will you do the research and find out for me? I'm coming back next Friday. All right. I'm going to put my faith in you, and I'm going to see if you whether you let me down or not. Like, in the same way, I put faith that somebody in this room would have memorized the six, six books of the Bible now and stood up and sat in front of the rest of the group so that I can give you a gift. But nobody, I just, I put my faith in the wrong things, apparently, right? Somebody needs to memorize the books of the Bible. Come on, God. It's not that hard, right? You can, you can still sing the lyrics to Rapper's Delight from 1978. And I know you, all of the right? New Testament. I know part of the Bible. All right, well, learn them. I will put faith in you that by next week you're going to be able to say, say the, the, it's not, it's really not that hard once you get it, right? Once you get it, you got it. So, anyhow, I'm going to put faith in you that you're going to research and find out for me next week how many books Paul wrote. All right? I think it's 12. It's either 11 or 12. If you count the book of Hebrews, I think it's 12. But, again, don't quote me on that. I'm going to ask you next Friday what it is. All right. So, after saying above sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sin, you have not desired nor have taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. This is verse 8. Now verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. So what it says is through the death of Jesus, He has taken away that first order. The bulls and the goats. That's gone now. And I have a lot of brothers, dear, dear brothers in Christ. I have a lot of dear brothers in Christ that believe that they're going to rebuild that temple over in Jerusalem and one day they're going to reestablish the sacrificial system over there. I don't believe it. Because I think it would be spitting in God's face and going back to something that He has abolished. That's me. You have to determine that for yourself. The reason I don't believe that is because the book of Hebrews says, look what it says. By this will, we, who is we? The believers, have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Look at that again. By God's will... When it says this will, it's referring back to verse 9. Look at 9. He said, Behold, I have come to do your will. Whose will did Jesus come to do? His Father's will. And what was His Father's will? I've come to take away the first order to establish the second. 
that by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Right? Now, that once for all is not talking about one sacrifice for all people. That's not what it's saying. Jesus said it is finished. What He's saying is by that one sacrifice for all times, He has sealed all of those that are His. You see how that works? A once for all act. So it's not one sacrifice for all people. It's one sacrifice and that's all that needs to be done. All right. Well, how do I believe that? Well, I want you to look with me. Keep your place here. We're going to come back to this. But I want you to turn really quickly back to me. We said earlier that Jesus is our high priest. Well, let's go to Jesus' high priestly prayer. All right, pop quiz. Where do I go in the Bible to find the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ? There's one chapter in the Bible where Jesus literally intercedes for His people and it's called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus Christ. Book of John. Book of John, good. We're close. John what? 15? Is it 15? A little bit more. 17. 17. John 17. Turn, turn with me there. Yep. John chapter 17. Let's turn there. Keep your, your place in Hebrews. And we're going to see Him. We're going to see in... In uh, John chapter 17, we're going to see Jesus. We're going to be a fly on the wall, if you will, as Jesus intercedes for His people. That's what this high priestly prayer is about. Look at John chapter 7. We'll start in verse 1. John chapter 7 and verse 1. Uh, John 17, verse 1. I'm sorry. This is what it says. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave Him authority over all flesh to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. I want you to look at that again. He's praying and He's interceding for the people. Look what He says. Father, even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. Who means who, right? Whom is the plural of who? The whom's, right? That's what whom means. It's the plural who's. It's, or it's how we would say in English today, who's. No, not we, that wouldn't even work, would it? So it's the plural of who. Whom is the plural of whom? How many of y'all know the most famous verse of the Bible? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever or whomsoever shall believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Right? So whom is plural of who? And look what He says there. You, so He's talking to His Father. He says you gave Him. He's talking about Himself. You gave Him authority over what? All flesh. That to all whom you have given Him He may give eternal life. There is the scope of the work on the cross. He died to save all whom the Father has given to Him. Alright, keep your finger there. Turn back with me to John chapter 6. Keep your finger in John 17. 
in John chapter 6. Look what he says in John chapter 6. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. Seeing is not believing, guys. And that's one of the major themes in all of the New Testament, all of the Bible. Seeing is not believing. But if you will believe, you will see. It's the exact opposite. It's not show me and I'll believe you. God says believe me and I'll show you. See how that works? Alright? So he said to, um, you have all seen me. Let me find out where I was there. 34, 32, 38, the bread of life. 34, then he said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Now look what it says in verse 37. All, how many is all? Everybody that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. See, God the Father gave God the Son a bride. That's the way it worked. Remember in the Old Testament, remember the story of uh, Isaac? His father Abraham gave him a bride, didn't he? Right? So God the Father has given God the Son a bride and Jesus came to save His bride. He says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 39, For this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He gives me, I lose nothing. All that the Father gives me, I will lose nothing. But I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will, look what it says, this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds, what does the word behold mean? See. Alright? Now, remember what he said a couple verses earlier. You have seen me, but you don't believe. But right here he says, all of them that see me will believe. Why? He's talking about the eye of faith, isn't it? Those who grasp him in faith. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. So, what does He say there? He says, All that the Father gives to Me will come to Me. The one who comes to Me I will never cast out. There is no one that has ever come to Jesus that Jesus said, Depart from Me, I never knew you. Not a single one. Jesus does not reject anyone who comes to Him. Yes? Yes, I like but is it like is it true that like you wouldn't come to Jesus unless we are chosen? Unless we what? Unless we are chosen. Like those people that are The ones who come to the, Him, according to this passage, are the ones that behold Him, that see Him. Right, and we're only made to see Him whenever we're growing. Right. Remember that it's all open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Right. It takes the Holy Spirit softening my heart, pulling that heart of stone out of me, and giving me a heart of flesh. Remember, Jesus all through the New Testament gives people new eyes, doesn't He? Right? We have to be able to see Him and the only way that we can see Him is through new eyes. We have to be able to believe Him and the only way that we can believe Him is through a new heart. And a new heart and new eyes and the only way that we can believe Him is if He breathes new life into us. 
Remember we talked about this last time. Just as God breathed life into Adam and made him a living being, we're dead in Adam, so God has to breathe new life into us so that we can be a new creation. Y'all sing that song, I'm a new creation, I'm a brand new man. Y'all still sing that? Okay, right? So God has to first breathe life into me before I'm able to see or believe. So, if I am a believer, it is because He loved me and died on the cross for me. He sent His Son to die and save me. And He sent His Spirit to make me aware of that. Yeah, we're chosen. That's right. The Bible never refers to us as the choosing ones. The, The Old Testament nation of Israel was not called the choosing people of God. They were called the chosen ones. The chosen people. And He didn't choose you because you were a good girl. Right? He chose you because He loved you. Right? And we can say, well, that's not fair. Why didn't He choose everybody? Right? Well, fair would be to send everybody to hell. It's in His grace that He reaches down and saves the people. And again, I, want to, I have to emphasize this reality. If your salvation is based on you choosing Him, then you're dependent on yourself. And who and remember, salvation is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If I get to stand before Him on Judgment Day and, and He says, why do I let you into my kingdom? And you say it's because I chose you. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. I stand before Him and I say, I don't deserve it, but you gave me a promise. And the reason I'm coming in is because you promised me. And then who gets all the glory for him? He does. That's exactly right. So, this is a beautiful picture of the redemptive narrative that Jesus came and died on that cross. And because you were a believer, what that means is you were in his scope when he died. His intent was to save you. And look what, it, and this is so super cool because look what it says in, the, in verse 40 there. For this is the will of the Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. And so what that means is that if somebody can be a believer and then they can reject Him and fall away from Him, then Jesus is not doing what He promised He would do. He promised to save you. He made that promise in eternity past. He kept that promise in the present and He's going to continue to keep that promise into eternity. And our hope is in Him. Amen? Alright, so let's, I've got a, just a couple minutes left. I do want to go back. So let's go back to that John 17, the high priestly prayer. Oh, I'm sorry. On your way back to 17, stop at John chapter 10. Look at John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Okay? Who does he die for? His sheep. On the final day, God is going to separate the sheep from the goats. Right? That's going to happen. And the reality is that Jesus didn't die to save goats. Now, that's a big pill to swallow. Because in our natural state, we want to say, wait a minute, that's not fair. Jesus should have died, died to save everybody. If this God that you profess and preach is so good, why does He send people to hell? I hear that question a lot. From if God is so good, why does He send people to hell? 
my reply to you is if God is so just, why does anybody get in heaven? He's a just God. And one sin sends me to hell for eternity. But in His grace, He reached down and saved people and said, not you, I love you. Not you, I love you. And His justice, His sending people to hell is an expression of His love too. Because God is love. And God is just. And we try to grasp those concepts by making those distinctions. But God's judgment is an expression of His love. Why? Because He always keeps His promise. And on that final day, every sheep that comes into heaven is going to glorify His mercy. And every goat that goes to hell is going to glorify His justice. And there's not one single person that will be in heaven that will say, well, I deserve to be here. And there is not one person in hell that can't say, I don't deserve to be here. And the reality is is that those in hell still hate God. If He was to reach down in there and pull one of them out and say, alright, if you'll repent and believe the Gospel, I'll let you go to heaven. They would spit in His face and climb back down into eternity and, and die. They hate God. They're God-haters. That's how evil we were before He saved us. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, walking according to the course of this world, walking according to the sprint, uh, spirit of the power of the, the evil uh, ruler of this age. We hated God. And we didn't want anything to do with it. But God who was rich in mercy, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, has made us alive together in Christ. He reached down and said, you're not going to be that way. I love you too much. And the path to get to that point is often ugly, is it not? We have to realize how sinful we are before we realize how merciful and gracious He is. That's all part of His plan. Last thing and then we'll be done. Go back to 17, the high priestly prayer again. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up His eyes, as John 17, 1, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You even as You have given Him authority over all flesh that to all whom You have given Him He may give eternal life. Now that sounds very familiar to what we just read in 6, isn't it? This is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself with the glory that I had with You before the worlds were founded. Now, that's an amazing statement right there because in the book of Isaiah, if you ever talk to somebody who says, well, it never tells us in the New Testament that Jesus is God. right? You'll hear people say that. Well, there's nowhere that clearly shows that Jesus is God in the New Testament. Here's one of them. Because in the book of Isaiah, Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah, the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping creator of the world says, I will share my glory with no one. And right here, what does it say? Glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the worlds were founded. And in Acts 10.28, look at this right here. I don't know if any of y'all have ever noticed this before. Flip with me right there really quick and look at this. Acts 10.28. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's the next book over. Acts 10 and verse 28.
Wait, I'm telling you the wrong passage. Acts 20, 28. Acts 20, 28. I'm sorry. God, I told you wrong. In Acts 20, 28, look what this says right here. Now, when your Jehovah Witness friend says to you, there's nowhere in the New Testament that says God, Jesus is God, right? You're going to hear people tell you that. Tell them to turn to Acts 20, 28 and read what it says. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. The church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Well, what's amazing about that is saying God has blood. God purchased the people with His blood. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem is that God is a spirit and those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. And spirits don't bleed. Angels do not bleed. You can't cut them. Despite Constantine or whatever that movie was. They don't bleed. So, what does this say again? Guard the people... Guard, you're a shepherd. Guard the church of God which He, Jesus Christ, purchased with His blood. And we'll finish with that thought. Remember I told you at the beginning of the lesson that Jesus is a mediator. He's 100% man and He's 100% God. And because He was 100% man, He had a blood to pour out. What is the, the symbol of the blood of Jesus? When the blood is poured out, what happens to a person? They die. Alright, so the blood is not some little like holy water like for vampires that you can you can't just sprinkle the blood of Jesus onto somebody and uh, and like repel demons. But that's not how the blood of Jesus worked. The blood of Jesus was one hundred percent pure. Why? Because he had no sin, because he was not born of the seed of a man, but of the seed of God. But he was born of the seed of a woman. And that means he had real blood in him. He got tired, he got hungry, he got sleepy. But his blood being poured out is not some magical liquid. It's his death that he poured out to save a people for it himself. You see how that works? He died on that cross. And how do we know he died? Remember they stuck a spear in his side and what came out? Blood in the water. The blood came out. He died. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Jesus had to die and He had to pour His blood out. But that one passage right there is really cool, I think, because it shows us that God bleeds. And God is a spirit. And the only way that He can bleed is if He is a man. Amen. Amen? So Jesus is God. We'll finish with that thought. I do pray. One of my prayers for you guys is that I challenge you Uh, that I get you stirred up in your thoughts going, wait a minute, that don't sound right, or, man, I've never thought of that. And what I'm praying happens is that it drives you to the Scriptures to see for yourself. Like, you need to prove and test every man and woman that stands up here and teaches you. You need to prove us. You need to make sure that what we're saying is what that Scripture is saying. And if it's not, if they're teaching you things that the Scriptures do not say, you count them as anathema. I pray that this is driving you to Scriptures because it is the Word of God and the Spirit of God 
that from now until eternity is going to conform you to the image of Jesus. It is the Word of God and the Spirit of God alone that conform you to Jesus' image. He is the potter. I am the clay. What are the hands that He uses to form you and make you? The Word of God and the Spirit of God. Amen? Father, thank You for this day.